What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. In the history of children's literature, there have been a lot of groundbreaking books that have changed the face of the field. One such book celebrated its 20th year of publication, so I thought we should look back a moment and reminisce about why Harry Potter was such an impactful book in the field of children's literature. First and foremost, the publication of Harry Potter was groundbreaking because it re-energized children's love of reading. It seemed to be common consensus at the time that kids wanted shorter books, and their reading attention spans could not handle long books. But then you get Harry Potter books, topping out at over 600 pages, that kids would read in one or two nights. The idea that kids had no attention for reading really did not hold any credence anymore. Another thing that these books did was get kids who were not naturally readers to become readers. As a librarian, I've always believed that there is no such thing as a non-reader, only readers who have not found the right book yet. And for so many children, Harry Potter became that one book that made them readers. It's also clear that from a publication standpoint, Harry made a big impact. When these books hit big, we started seeing a resurgence of children's books being published. Publishers realized that children's books could be big moneymakers, and they began to gamble more on new authors and unknown talent. In many ways, this book revitalized children's publishing, so much so that it was at this time we really started making distinctions between different audiences. Before Harry Potter, the categories were children's and adult books. But because Harry aged up through the books with his readers, we began to see more clear developmental differences in the audiences. So after its publication, we saw a stronger affinity towards classing books as children's middle grade and young adult. And also, the last thing we saw was a change in attitudes towards books. Knowing that a book could be a blockbuster just like a movie, we now have a really strong understanding of the amazing impact books can have on people's lives. So here at Rachel's World, we are grateful for the splash that Harry Potter made, that it got kids reading again, and that it changed the field of children's literature for the better. Real stories, real lives, real people. We often meet them in biographies. Perhaps we're inspired by their examples to move through our own hard times. Individuals who are seemingly ordinary, but accomplish extraordinary things. Today, Jessica Frizzello of the World's Awaiting Team visits with children's book author Jen Bryant, who often writes about such real and inspiring people. Some we've heard about, others not. Bryant is an award-winning author of picture books, novels, and poems for readers of all ages, her books include The Right Word, Roger and His Thesaurus, A River of Words, The Story of William Carlos Williams, and George's Bones, Celebrating the Life of Artist Georgia O'Keeffe. Jen Bryant has taught writing and children's literature at Westchester University and Bryn Mawr College and gives school and public lectures throughout the year. Here's Jessica with Jen. We're sitting here with Jen Bryant. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. 
And you are an amazing author of children's literature. I have loved every novel and children's book that I have read of yours. And it's just incredible to be sitting here next to you. (laughs) Well, thank you. That's very nice to say. Um, One thing that really impressed me, especially your your nonfiction um, picture books, is where where do you find these interesting people, and and how do you choose who to spotlight? Mm. That's a really common question. Um, I often find that it feels more like they find me. Um, I, I often start all of those picture book biographies with something very small, and it's really something that I usually find by accident. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, the picture book, A Splash of Red, The Life and Art of Horace Pippin. Um, I was actually writing my novel, Pieces of Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, and that it's, it takes place at the Brandywine River Museum in Chadsford, Pennsylvania, near where I live. Um, at the time, I was also um, teaching writing at Westchester University, so I had brought a class of my writing students to um, the museum, and we were walking through the galleries, and as their um, instructor, I was walking around making sure everyone was getting their information and if they had any questions, and I just happened to notice this lovely, small painting over in the corner that I knew right away was not one of the Wyeth paintings. It looked mm-hmm. very different. So um, when there were a few minutes, I walked over to the painting, uh, and the title was Saying Prayers, and it was a kitchen scene of an African-American mother with two children who were kneeling down, obviously before they, they went to bed. And it was lovely. And um, I read the little white sign next to that, and it said this is uh, a painting by Horace Pippin, who was born in Westchester, um, fought in World War I, and was severely wounded, and took up painting again. Um, he had loved to draw and paint in childhood, but after the war, he came home and he retaught himself to paint by holding up his right hand with his left because of his shoulder injury. So uh, over the course of the next nine or ten years, I, I really just dug into his life and um, did a lot of deep research. Um, during that time, I wrote A River of Words about William Carlos Williams, and Melissa illustrated that. So I met her at the Caldecott you know, banquet, because usually illustrators and authors work quite separately. But after I had this manuscript, and I, I talked to her about it, after we had done A River of Words, she said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm in, I'm very interested in this. She did come down then, and um, we retraced a lot of the steps that I had walk during my research. So in that capacity, we did some research together. But again, she goes back to her studio in Maine and does all of that illustration, um, you know, without my knowing what she's, she's painting. And then the book comes together at the publishers, my text with her, mm-hmm. with her art. So that's just one example, getting back to your question of how, you know, I really stumbled upon that subject and was just taken by it. But most of my books start that way. I really am not very intentional about following a trend or uh, taking someone in the news. It, it, it has to really hit my heart first. I guess that's a good way to put it. Uh, and I can, I mean, it's very evident to me in all of your writing that your heart is there and that you really want to be true to the story and, and these people. Um, I, I'm really curious as to how you stumbled upon um, Roger mm-hmm. and his thesaurus. Right. So if you don't mind no. telling me that origin story. And, and that, was a, that was 
just as accidental, in fact. Um, my husband's family lives, uh, part, some of them live out near Pittsburgh, and they would have a gathering after Christmas. And my husband and daughter this particular year were going out, and I had an engagement back home, so I was staying in eastern Pennsylvania. It's a five-hour trip on the Pennsylvania Turnpike from Philadelphia to the Pittsburgh area. And I wasn't going, but at the last minute, my event got canceled. So almost everyone knows this feeling. Oh, my gosh, I've (laughs) got to pack in five minutes, throw stuff in the bag. And I threw in what I thought was a novel that I had gotten at, like, a used book sale at the library. I obviously wasn't looking and was doing this very fast. It turned out to be an early edition of the Roger's Thesaurus. Wow. And, um, I, you know, I didn't have my laptop with me. So I ended up, you know, reading the, an early edition of Roger's Thesaurus. And for five hours I had, um, you know, I had that time to really look at it. So several things happened. First of all, we've all used Thesaurus as a, um, you know, a drop-down menu on a mm-hmm. computer um, which is not really the thesaurus, but it's what we call it. And then, you know, the paperback edition that you, you get in college, and later on, if you're a writer, you quick look up a synonym and put it back. But those are all in alphabetical order. Mm-hmm. And what I realized when I had this early edition was that, first of all, there was a preface, and it was written by one man. I, I just figured it was written by a huge committee because it's such an ambitious book. Um, and second of all, it was organized by ideas. And so when I started to think about, well, this one person, why would someone tackle something like that? It would be like paint, trying to paint a mural and put all of creation into mm-hmm. it. Um, so that, again, similarly to the Pippin story, I, there was an aha moment when I thought, well, this was an, a unique and unusual person. I'm going to follow this lead. And again, just started to poke around in his life and realize that he was such a Renaissance guy he was interested in just about every subject and was an authority on many of them. Uh, he was a doctor by the time he was 19. He traveled around Europe. He spoke several languages. He wrote about optics. He wrote about uh, chemistry. He wrote about botany. Um, and he, was, he lectured quite frequently. And in fact, the first thesaurus was his way of making sure that he didn't get too anxious about public speaking, that he would have this book where all of the possible words uh-huh. that he might need would be right there in front of him. Um, and that was interesting. I mean, that's something most of us as, as writers and artists, you know, we're fairly introverted and we, we work in a solitary way. Um, I think Roger was also like that. And so whenever he had to do some public speaking, it was sort of a security blanket for him to have that list book there. And that's an interesting story. It's something that I think most people can relate to. And I, you know what I really love about this, this format, especially for this nonfiction genre, is that it, it opens it up to kids. I mean, and to me, because nonfiction is not my first go-to, but it's a, it's a great way to tell people that there are these incredible stories and incredible people for things like thesaurus.com that everyone uses, it had to start somewhere with a very special and unique person. Um, You know, I think of Webster's Dictionary and how much of a collaborative effort over many years that was. And it's just incredible to me that the the thesaurus exists because of Roger. It's just... It's, it's incredible. It is. And that's, um, I, I try and um, uh, 
I try and find individuals who in some ways are very ordinary, like, like you and me, and, mm-hmm. and they have, and to show in the biography the ordinary aspects of their lives. You know, Horace Pippin volunteered for World War I. He was a soldier. He, he delivered laundry, you know, with his, with his wife. Um, Peter Marc Roger was nervous before he would go uh, to a dance where there'd be a lot of girls, and mm-hmm. so he would count his steps. And, you know, things like that. There are very human aspects of these people who do extraordinary things. You know, Louis Braille uh, had chores to do at home, and um, even after he became blind, his parents were very emphatic about the fact that he would indeed participate in regular life as, as, as they did. Um, and so the, the ordinary aspects of these extraordinary people, I also you know, make sure to show that because otherwise there's no way into the book for mm-hmm. a child. They say, oh, well, this was an extraordinary person, but that's not me. You know, right. I want them to say, oh, wow, look at this person who had aspects of his life that are just like mine. And yet, look what they did. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Jen Bryant, children's book author, talks about her biographies written for kids and how she discovers people to spotlight. Up next, Rachel Wadham talks with Jamie Horrocks, BYU English professor, an expert in Victorian literature and culture who focuses on Victorian children's periodicals. These periodicals were forerunners of today's magazines that serialize stories in sequential editions. Jamie Horrocks researches Victorian aesthetics and the intersection of literature and art, especially in the late 19th century. She has published on Oscar Wilde, Vernon Lee, Virginia Woolf, and the aesthetic movement. Here's Rachel and Jamie Horrocks. We're in the studio with Jamie today. Welcome, Jamie. Hi, thank you. Well, if you go to your mailbox today and get a copy of Highlights Magazine or maybe Ranger Rick out of the mailbox for, for your child, um, you may not realize that you are engaging in a wonderful thing that is a long and beautiful heritage of children's magazines, children's periodicals. This has just had such a wonderful, strong history. And I think sometimes, particularly in this modern age where print is print magazines are becoming less familiar, we we are losing this wonderful heritage. So I'm so excited to have you here today, Jamie, to kind of introduce us to the essentially the origins of the children's magazine. So tell us a little bit about how did this all start? What What is this children's magazine thing? And, and why do you think it's important? Well, it goes way back. Um, I think as far as I've read, the first children's magazine um, appeared in the 1750s. It was called the Lilliputian Magazine. Um, so it's part of a long tradition. But remember that children's literature really becomes popular once you have children who are literate. And that doesn't happen until the 18th century, 19th century. But also happening at the time is a drop in prices, right? You can't afford to buy a book for your child. Um, until it's cheap enough that your child might, you know, throw it on the floor or ruin it. So one way that parents accommodated um, the desire for their newly literate children to read without having to incur the expense or, you know, the extravagance of buying them an actual book, which they may mistreat, was to turn to periodicals. Periodicals were enormously popular throughout the 19th century, largely because they were so cheap. They were easy to produce, quick to produce. Um, You could churn out a new one every week. But even the poorest people, and so people who are just barely literate, 
could purchase periodicals and enjoy the fiction in those. These periodicals during this period are just gorgeous. And so I I think one of the things I'd like to start out with is is talking about the illustrations in these periodicals. Because for me, even as a modern reader looking at these, that is one of the things that connects me so much to these, the beautiful illustrations. So why did they have these gorgeous illustrations or what role did the illustrations play in these periodicals? That's a great question. Um, The idea of the look of these periodicals. So you mentioned something like Highlights, which I grew up reading as a little kid. Um, Something like Highlights, Ranger Rick, they're very colorful, very illustrated, large pictures, and usually small blocks of text. When you're talking about Victorian children's periodicals, you have to undo all of that, right? So there's no color in the illustration. And we're mostly talking about pages that are printed in two columns of very dense text. So They would be daunting, I think, to most child readers today. They look a little bit like a Bible um, with these two black columns of text on each side. So one of the important things that illustrations did, and in this era we're talking about illustrations as primarily woodcut engravings. Um, So black and white, um, sort of what we we would think of as stamps. You know, you ink them and then reverse them and print them. Um, But one of the important things they did is they broke up those long blocks of text for children And they also ease the transition from sort of semi-literate to fully literate, right? So those those young people, or even in the 19th century, older, maybe adolescents who were reading at a very low level could use the illustrations as a bridge to work their way into the literature that would otherwise have just been um, visually daunting for them. The illustrations um, in a lot of these two, they were done at a time when even famous artists thought it was still like not not beneath them to make illustrations for children's literature. So you get gorgeous illustrations in random magazines that aren't that important by really famous artists. So they're just lovely. So name a few of those artists for us. Yeah. Um, so a very popular um, artist named Leighton um, was beloved for his illustrations. Lindley Sanborn is um, – he was a very popular children's illustrator – John Tenniel, who is perhaps most famous for illustrating the Alice books, uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice books. Um, John Everett Millay, who was a famous, much more famous as an oil painter, a Pre-Raphaelite oil painter, um, also known um, and beloved for his uh, illustrations that he did. A colleague of Millay, um, Rossetti, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, he also did these black and white illustrations. So it was an, a, a totally respectable way for artists to make money in between sort of these large canvas projects. That is one of the things that's so joyful for me about this is this connection between the art and the text. But the stories particularly in these are just delightful. And a lot of them are things that would be semi-familiar to us today because a lot of authors, too, these were the ways that they got their stories out first to children and oftentimes had them published, serialized in these kinds of periodicals before they actually became books. So talk to us a little bit about the stories. How did the stories fit into all of this? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a really important point. So when we pick up a children's book from the 19th century, um, like Treasure Island or the, the Jungle Book, Kipling's Jungle Book, we're picking up a book. It's bound. It usually has a hardcover. Um, all of the, the chapters are published together. But in the 19th century, that would be an unusual case for a child. 
Um, most of the famous children's lit that we're still familiar with was serialized. And so, for example, Treasure Island, The Jungle Book, many of your listeners probably know uh, The Little Princess. These were published a chapter at a time or a section at a time, sometimes a week apart, sometimes a month apart. And in order to follow the story, you would have to you know, continuously buy these issues um, and so it's always interesting to me to think about, was it the children who would read, you know, the first chapter of something and then pester their parents the rest of the month? You've got to buy the next one. You've got to buy the next one. Or was it more serendipitous? It just, you know, a parent happens to pick up this volume, maybe in the middle of a story that's already started, and then children like it and have to try to go backwards to find earlier sections of the stories. So for us, these narratives are totally complete and organic. They're holistic sort of elements. But for children reading in the 19th century, it would have come in bits and pieces, which changes the reading experience. You know, one thing it does is it introduces pauses in between your reading. And that's a perfect place for imagination to begin. You can sit and wonder to yourself for the next week or the next month, I wonder what's going to happen to that character. I wonder who we're going to meet next. I wonder if this is going to take place rather than this. Um, And so it invites a kind of intellectual interactivity um, in a way that maybe we lose when we pick up a, a fully published volume. The other thing that I think is interesting about this is that it, to me, kind of brings one of those unique characteristics of the children's literature in this era. Because oftentimes when I read these books, there are those pauses, right? There's a cliffhanger at the end that wants you to get to the next chapter. Or maybe the chapters don't entirely feel like they're connected, right? Or that each chapter feels like its own little slice of the story. And I think some of those kind of jarring things that we look at with this type of literature just comes from that necessary part of it that that sometimes these were written far enough apart that they may have forgotten, the, you know, some pieces of what went on before. So it really does make this interesting kind of flow as a reader reading it from beginning to end, because they were meant to be read in this kind of up and down month-to-month kind of way. Right. And and as you know, children are pretty savvy consumers. And so if you create a story, and this is especially true of like the boys' adventure fiction that becomes popular in the 1870s, 80s, 90s. If you create a story that has a really juicy cliffhanger at the end, um, a child can make their parents' life pretty miserable until they buy that next installment. And so I think authors figured out very quickly um, how to market literature, in a sense, to children who might not be the primary consumer. Which is just a testament to the fact that children's literature has always been about marketing. <laughs> no, absolutely. And it, it even is today. Still, absolutely. it's all about the marketing. As as we close up our conversation, why don't you mention just one or two titles of children's periodicals in this time period that you think are particularly notable? So some of the most famous ones in England, at least, were called The Boys' Own Magazine or The Boys' Own Paper and The Girls' Own Paper. And what's interesting to me is how little fiction actually appears in a lot of these periodicals, right? There was one called The Union Jack, which was very uh, nationalistic, as you can imagine. There was one called The Young Englishwoman. But many of these had maybe one quarter of the content, actual fiction, but they were also dishing out to, to, to children natural history, biographies, essays, history. There were a lot of little jokes and riddles 
and a lot of, interestingly enough, a lot of little math problems that they would invite their readers to send in the solution if they can figure out the problem and you, you know, get your name in the next installment or something. And so when we think of, oh, you wouldn't read a, a small child a, a biography of someone from, from British history. No, absolutely. They were children's fair in these magazines. These are such excellent magazines. And one of the things that excites me about our ability today is that so many of these have been digitized and you can go on the internet and find really beautiful scans of the originals and you can, you know, scroll in and out and, you know, read the really small print really well (laughs) that sometimes I can't even read when I see the real ones. So they they are really very available today for modern readers to take a look at. I think they're still very readable, too. Um, it's the language isn't inaccessible. Uh, they're simplistic stories for the most part, but it really is fascinating to think about what people thought would be interesting to children in another era versus what we think would be interesting to children today. So it's a good time to jump on the internet and start looking for some great Victorian periodicals to to add to your reading with your children. That is beyond the the modern highlights that we that we all enjoy. Thank you so much, Jamie. You're welcome. Jamie Horrocks, BYU English professor, talking about Victorian children's periodicals, the forerunners of today's magazines that have continuing stories. We finish up the show with a book review from Joella Peterson, Children's Services Manager at the Provo City Library. She introduces a book entitled The Princess and the Warrior, written and illustrated by Duncan Tonatiuh. This is fantastic book. I love, 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 love this picture book, and if I could throw more loves in there, I would. So it's an old legend that um, comes from Mexico, and basically what it is is there's this princess who loves her people and loves poetry and serving her people, and all these great warriors and princes come, and they want to court her and marry her and put her on a pedestal, but she doesn't really want that. There's one warrior that comes that says oh, I want to love you for who you are, and I want you to stay true to who you are. And she falls in love with him. But, of course, her dad doesn't want her to have anything to do with him, so he sends him off to war and says, if you become the champion of this war, then I will consent to having you come back and marry my daughter. So the warrior goes off, and he goes to war, and... He's doing so well that the Jaguar clan, who they're fighting, decides to be sneaky and treacherous and send back a messenger to the princess saying that they lost, um, that her warrior lost even though he didn't, and give her this potion that will make her feel better because her heart is crushed. So she takes the potion and doesn't wake up. So when the warrior actually comes back, he is distraught because the princess won't wake up. But he promised to always stay with her, so he thinks that if he takes her out into the cool air that she'll wake up. She doesn't, but he stays with her, and that's the legend of how two volcanoes in Mexico have come to be. One volcano lies dormant and just is there, and the other is awake and every now and then has ash and smoke spewing from the volcano, and that is the warrior who is still watching over his princess volcano. Now, that thing that I love a lot about this book It's not just this brilliant um, story that is a classic Mexican folktale, but I also love the fact that the illustrations are done in a classic 
Aztec type of style. And the thing that's really cool is the um, illustrator will take pictures of things. So like there's a bit of rope that ties the warrior's hair up. And the rope is actually details of a real rope. And then it's just put together in pictures. Or the hair, it looks like it's actually details of pictures of hair. And um, there's turquoise earrings that the princess wears or things like that. So it's not only the style that fits with this Mexican heritage and theme, but it also has these little details that are real glimpses as to what real things would be thrown into this illustration. So I really like that particular picture book. Joella Peterson, Children's Services Manager at the Provo City Library in Utah, reviewing a picture book entitled The Princess and the Warrior, written and illustrated by Duncan Tonatiu. We'll look forward to more young reader book reviews in the future. For a full collection of book reviews, check out the World's Awaiting Book Reviews link on our website at byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.